Hi everyone, today is October 26, 2017. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, uh, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. I'm your host, Salma Karashi, as usual. Our guest today is Lori Naxted. Hi, Lori. Hi. Lori's an assistant professor of psychology and an investigator in the Center for Addiction Research and Education um, at the University of Florida. Her lab works on adaptations in the nucleus accumbens core uh, that underlie relapse in rodent models of addiction. So around the room today, we've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Matt Wannett. Howdy. And again, I'm your host, Selma Karashi. So, okay, so let's start, let's just start by, you know, with your, with your work. So you've spent a lot of time studying specifically mechanisms of glutamate homeostasis uh, in the accumbens core, I guess, initially with Peter Kalivas and now in your own lab. And um, can you just say something about how glutamate dynamics and accumbens relate to drug reinstatement and tell us about the mechanisms and the players, sort of the key players that you focus on um, that regulate glutamate uh, in that system pre and post synaptically. Sure, so the catchphrase that we use is that we study glutamate homeostasis in the nucleus accumbens core. And by homeostasis, we're referring to how glutamate is released and also taken back up um, into mostly the glia. And so we study the transporters that re are responsible for the release of glutamate, um, which includes system XC minus, uh, also known um, as uh, the cysteine glutamate exchanger. And that is a sodium independent transporter that takes up extracellular cysteine and ex releases uh, intracellular glutamate into the extrasynaptic space. Um, and that's present throughout the brain. Um, and on the other side, you have the classic glutamate transporters, um, which are called the, the excitatory amino acid transporters, and there's five of those. But we primarily study one of them, which is in humans called EAT2, and in the rodent called GLT1, and that's a classic glutamate transporter that removes glutamate um, from the synapse and the extrasynaptic area. And so, and both of these are astrocytic. Yes, they're mostly expressed on astrocytes, but we can't rule out that they may also be presynaptic. And so what's been found pretty consistently in our lab and other labs is that after a history of um, an animal choosing to take cocaine through cocaine self-administration um, and looking at two to three weeks um, after cessation of cocaine intake that we have decreases in the function of both of those transporters. And so when we think about basally, that, that means that if we have a decrease in system XC minus activity, we have a decrease in basal levels of glutamate. Um, when we have a decrease in GLT-1 activity, that means that the amount of glutamate synaptically released um, can't be taken back up into the astrocytes as efficiently. So you see that as an increase in glutamate? Because it can't be taken back up, so it looks like... It Transiently an increase. an increase, yes, but the glutamate eventually is taken back up. So when we, say, when we say basal, we really mean this long-term kind of stable um, levels of extrasynaptic glutamate, and we're talking about basal in the sense that our rat is not behaving. So we're not. So we're not the mechanisms of cocaine doing that to start. 
How, are, how is cocaine doing that? That's yeah. a great question. So um, we briefly looked at mRNA recently and we were kind of surprised to find that this isn't um, a transcriptional adaptation, that cocaine isn't directly decreasing mRNA for these transporters. And so um, we and others had been assuming that for quite a long time. Um, so now we have to start looking in other directions and find out you know, what is the mechanism that is causing the downregulation of these transporters. So what, what factors potentially influence the function of uh, the cysteine glutamate exchanger? I mean, it, because it's, you know, as you mentioned, it's sodium independent. Are there sort of periods of time where it might be more active? Like, what are those sort of regulatory elements that potentially could influence it? Because in some ways, it just sort of seems like, you know, in, are, is there any evidence to suggest there's sort of, you know, dynamic regulation of extracellular levels of, you know, cysteine that could end up influencing sort of the, the activity or the rate at which the, the transport occurs? The levels of cysteine could absolutely affect how well it's working. Following cocaine, the levels of cysteine have been shown to not change, and so that's not what's causing the problem in this situation. Um, what we do know can dynamically regulate system X, C minus um, its function. We know that the autoreceptors, that the mglur 23 autoreceptors that are positioned in theory right across the extrasynaptic space from system X, C minus influence it so that if you um, uh, infuse an antagonist of mglur 23 into the nucleus accumbens core, you will also decrease glutamate output through system XC- and vice versa. So there seems to be crosstalk between those two mechanisms there. If you, um, you know, in vitro, if you block glutamate transport, there's some evidence that you are you are blocking the amount of glutamate going into the astrocyte, and that is the pool of glutamate that is being then released by system XC minus, and so you don't have a, that activity of system XC minus is then decreased because you've prevented glutamate transport. So those things, I guess, G protein, couple of receptor sorts of things, wouldn't be. But maybe act by way of phosphorylation or something like that. There's some hints that PKA and PKC regulate system XC minus function. And so, to get that to be long-lasting takes some extra work. Right? right. So you mean long-lasting in terms of the long-lasting deficits that we yeah. see in system XC minus? So that most likely comes from the decrease in protein expression, not activity, but the actual amount of XCT protein that is present. And so we, I didn't really mention it too much in my talk, but we do see some hints that it might not be um, total amount of XCT and GLT-1 that are altered, but how they're trafficked into the membrane. And so we're starting to look at things like membrane trafficking of both of these, because sometimes when we do our, our Western blot analysis in a total protein, which is just take the whole nucleus accumbens and do a Western blot, we don't see as pronounced as an effect as if we um, prepare a membrane fraction or a surface protein fraction. So astrocytes, require glutamate, right, for metabolic function. And what happens when you knock out the XT, or sorry, the, sorry, the C system XC? X, yeah, that one. Um, what happens when you knock out that versus um, maybe GLT-1? And what, do we know what astrocytes are doing in response to, because you use What else do they these? eat? Normally they yeah. eat glutamate. Yeah. What are they going to eat if the glutamate's all done? 
So I think those are really good questions, and um, I think that there's some tools out there to answer them now. It would be really interesting to do something like look at astrocyte size after knocking down XCT, for example, in a, in so a healthy you've animal. You've, you've looked at GFAP, though, right? In, I've never quantified it. And so um, the best way to do that is um, using a virus that... Um, has a that just so there's there's viruses out there that for example would use a GFAP promoter and you would think that maybe you're filling your astrocyte with GFP but GFP doesn't like to go into the astrocytic processes and so you need to use um, a special virus that that exists out there um, has a something called like the LCK um, manipulation and that fills every single astrocytic process and so then you can do things like quantify the size and um, contacts with with neurons and so that's been done after cocaine and so that's how we know that cocaine induces um, a loss of contacts between the astrocyte and the um, uh, the neurons and cocaine induces reduction in astrocyte size but then it would be really interesting to start playing around with XCT and GLT-1 and and seeing if that influences the contacts and the size. So how are you manipulating um, Glutamate homeostasis using these two, or what's what's so the the tools that we use are um, anti anti sense against either XCT or GLT one to knock it down. Um, we have a GLT one AAV to bring back GLT one expression as well, and then of course ceftriaxone, mm -hmm. which right. is a medication that if you give it chronically for five to seven days. Um, you can induce upregulation of both XCT and GLT-1 expression in their function. And this is specific to accumbens, this upregulation? Um, so following cocaine, um, it has been shown that ceftriaxone increases both proteins in the accumbens and in the prefrontal cortex, and then in models of other um, um, drug <coughs> drug. Um, Self-administration, such as alcohol, it's been shown to affect expression in um, the amygdala and hippocampus. And ceftriaxone has actually been used in many different models now of um, insult to the brain. So, for example, stroke, um, Huntington's disease, and and it's been found to kind of fix GLT-1 in in these other animal models as well. So, there, so we know how global the when we talk about glutamate homeostasis mm -hmm. is this. Most of these effects are due to like whatever global means, uh, uh, basal levels of, of glutamate and extra synaptically like all over the place versus some kind of you know your homeostatic uh, load and challenge will be different near a synapse, so you may have a different regulation of what well, homeostasis may mean something different near a synapse versus far away. It's a really great question, yeah. So, and the tools that we use in our lab can't really specify between those two different compartments right now, so whether we're seeing adaptations extrasynaptically or synaptically. So but with the tools that you do use, if you just um, down-regulate GLT-1, do you, do you see just basal increases in glutamate from your measurements? We did not. So what's compensating for that? I don't know. That's a good question. So I think, well, I think that probably GLT-1 is not just a sink, right? That just sucks up glutamate. And then if you plug the sink, then the sink starts filling up with glutamate. Um, I think it's probably a lot more dynamic than that. And it sucks up glutamate and it spits it out and it depends on a lot of things like 
membrane potential, uh, pH, levels of intracellular sodium concentration, and um, if you knock them out, you're just removing one thing that dynamically regulates uh, among a bunch of things that dynamically regulate levels of glutamate up and down. Um, you think that's possible? Absolutely. Okay. And I think that maintaining <laughs> glutamate levels within a range is really important for our brain. And so it yeah. makes sense that it's evolved these multiple mechanisms to do that. So why, I mean, this is, I, I mean, it's just a fascinating thing, the fact that they're, you know, you, you talked about the ALS study where they, you know, demonstrated the potential of upregulating GLT-1. You mentioned some other studies that, you know, why is GLT-1 so sensitive to insult? Like, what's happening that, like, all of these different models, and then, I mean, do we have any idea, like, why it's just so, something goes wrong in the brain, and it seems like GLT-1 goes down, but then you can give, you know, you upregulate it. It doesn't, you know, plug the sink. It, sense but it's you know what 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 is so special about it that seems to be so sensitive to like all insults like it, does anybody have any idea or is this just sort of an open question of it's an open question and I would wonder if it's not that the GLT-1 is sensitive but it's the astrocytes that are holding the GLT-1 might be sensitive to it to insult if Carlos's idea is right I mean that the GLT-1 is a is a controller of extracellular glutamate or of the ratio between extracellular and intracellular glutamate or something like that. And then you, um, you lose it. So what do you lose when you lose control like that? So one thing that could happen is glutamate doesn't get equilibrated quickly because you don't have enough GLT-1 moving it back and forth in either direction. Right? So any kind of change in glutamate which would normally be dampened out really quick, would take longer to dampen out. Yeah. And another one is the range over which it can be maintained would become messed up. So possibly the, the dynamic the, range just so would just lose control yeah. every yeah. now and, and things then. Can just and things go off, off, uh, off the rails, and then it takes time to get them. But in either, in, any, in either direction, right? So it could just. It could go either way. Go either yeah. way. So the. Uh, I guess that um, I'm just trying to think of how to connect that up to what's happening in drug abuse. So let's say somebody is taking cocaine and that causes a down, regula down regulation or reduced activity of GLT-1 and as a result homeostasis is, is weaker. And so, so some challenge comes along and glutamate, uh, is that where we're is that where we're going with this? And then glutamate, in response to that challenge, would normally be maintained within some levels, but now it isn't anymore. And so maybe momentarily, there's, a, there's some kind of crazy glutamate transient, which and then that, goes that's away. That's likely what happens during a, re, a relapse event, ah. when the glutamate efflux is, in, is incredibly high. And so relapse so, is like too much glutamate at a particular moment in time. That's yeah. what is the trigger to do it. So, uh, uh, why would that glutamate want somebody to make somebody want to take cocaine again? And can I connect those up? So then, so theory is that then glutamate binding to those medium spiny neurons then drives their output to the motor regions to move the body to seek drugs. So the spiny neurons think they got a bigger stimulus than they really did. Yes through and, uh, an increase in glutamate as well as adaptations in the AMPA receptors and NNDA receptors. 
So is there much, you know, tackling the problem from a different angle is, so glutamate's coming from someplace else. And so if you, you know, increase the amount of the uh, mglur 23 or the, the autoinhibitory, you know, mglurs, is that sort of an avenue that we should be thinking about to pursue? So if you've, you know, we've lost the buffering system of the astrocytes, can we just silence the inputs? And does that by itself, does that reduce reinstatement? And are there sort of potential drugs to actually look at that as well? There are not particular, there are not good drugs. Um, if we use um, an mglur 23 agonist or a positive allosteric modulator, it certainly will reduce reinstatement, not just to cocaine, but to other drugs of abuse. Um, but they also reduce um, the animal's motivation to eat and drink. And so it seems to more globally affect behavior. Yeah. I think the, the cool thing about astrocytes is that, especially when we think about GLT-1, is that when GLT-1 is slowed down by, say, other inputs, it's really just slowing down um, at synapses that it's wrapped around that are active at the time, right? So GLT-1 will slow down the uptake of glutamate, which means that glutamate has to be there for it to uptake. <laughs> so if an act is synapse is silent, GLT-1 can't do anything, whether it's there or not. So the cool thing about GLT-1 and astrocytes is that if you target that as a drug target, then you're affecting changes at active synapses when the drug is on board, rather than when the drug is not on board, um, or, or if you use a drug target that just targets all glutamate inputs to the accumbens, and then you get side effects like not only do you cure addiction, but you also cure people from wanting to go eat, right? And, and all these other things that we normally want to have drive for. But any synapse that gets active is now going to be subject to this. So if I think the synapses are active when I feel like taking cocaine, that's one set of synapses. We want to suppress those. The synapses that are active when I feel like going to eat dinner, there's, there's still going to be a shortage of glutamate uptake around those synapses too, right? Or do you think that it's really synapses? Yeah, so while, while you're taking drugs or while you're on drugs, whatever is your drug of choice, <laughs> um, I don't know why that makes me laugh, but um, <laughs> the, um, those are the ones, those are the synapses that are active. So while you're seeking drugs or while you're actively taking drugs, I guess this is probably a better model for when drugs are actually on board. And so those synapses that are active that you want while you're actively taking drugs are the ones being affected at that time. Yeah. Um, but then once you recover and then you go about your normal daily business, um, those synapses that, that are being activated from that behavior are not being affected by the drug. I guess. One would, I mean, if you wanted to imagine a, uh, wanted to imagine some kind of a, a treatment, you would like it to be specific for just the synapses that are involved in drug taking and not yeah. the, uh, and so when those eating dinner synapses come online, you don't want, and that drug's still going to be around because who knows, I'm walking down the street eating a burger and then I see somebody I used to take coke with. Yeah. Right? So you can't like dissociate those things in time very well. Make sure that I'm only taking the drug when one of them is happening and not when the other is happening. So how can you dissociate them? You need to find the circuits in the nucleus accumbens that are activated by this versus that. That would be hard. Lori, isn't that the cool thing about ceftriaxone? That it 
really only upregulates GLT-1 if it's actually missing? Yes. So yeah, that's where I was going to jump in and say that that's what is interesting about ceftriaxone is that it's not fixing, um, or it's, it's not causing a problem that's not there. In our hands, it doesn't increase GLT-1 um, in naive animals. And so in theory, it can rescue GLT-1. It can restore homeostasis where it's missing, but it's not upregulating. So for that to work right, so maybe this is already known even, for that to work right, cocaine would have to downregulate GLT-1 only at the synapses that are activated yeah. in some relationship And I think that's probably not happening because the work of Bruce, Ho you know, Bruce Hope's lab has shown really that it's only about 4% of neurons that are active during a relapse test in the nucleus accumbens. And so if we're doing this global punch of the nucleus accumbens or sticking a big microdialysis probe into the nucleus accumbens, I'm sure that we are measuring from more than just those 4% of neurons that are active. And so um, I think we are globally affecting the whole nucleus accumbens, but it's not affecting food seeking. Uh, so, so do we know it's it working anyway? It works anyway somehow. Sorry, yeah, yeah. but I was just thinking, but if it doesn't affect food seeking, then the degree to which it's global, it can't be completely global. It's got to be doing something like what? Food seeking doesn't cause the big spike in glutamate, though, right? It's, it's, it's locked to this, this increase in extracellular glutamate that causes reinstatement, right? Right. So do we know where GLT-1 is expressed on the astrocytic processes? Do we find, I mean, so we're talking about, you know, where it's happening, you know, how it could control in a synapse-specific manner. Well, is it only found, like, juxtaposed to, you know, synapses where you can track, or is it in, you know, extrasynaptic area? You know, do we know anything about the distri distribution pattern of, you know, the XCT and GLT-1 on astrocytes? And this could, in some way, sort of confer the sort of specificity of it's only being down-regulated at specific locations at the relevant. So the majority of it is thought to be right at, at the synapses in order to um, you know, take back up the synaptically released glutamate um, and to buffer that extra synaptic space to prevent it from spilling over. Great, that's been seen by immunocytochemistry or something. There you go. Electron microscopy. Uh -huh. So if you think of the failure of these two transporters, what's the, how, how do you imagine the timeline? Because you could sort of intuitively think, well, you know, the GLT-1 fails first because it's synaptically, you know, that's where the, the, the range sort of has, has to be most sensitive. And then that then causes a downstream change to the XCT. Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. If I XCT, yeah. If I had to make a guess like a chicken or an egg guess, I would say that XCT was downregulated first based on some of the data that I presented today where if you decrease basal glutamate, you cause a host of changes in other glutamate proteins in the nucleus accumbens core. But do you cause a change in GLT-1? So we don't see the change in expression. Um, however, what I didn't really address in my talk was that when we see a decrease in basal glutamate after knocking down XCT, we do see a change in the slope of um, the no net flux line um, of regression, which often means that there is a functional change in glutamate transport. And so it's possible that though we didn't change the protein expression, that we did affect how GLT-1 is functioning. And so that would be more of a homeostatic mechanism where we've decreased the amount of glutamate that's being released into the extrasynaptic space by knocking down 
XCT and system XC minus, and so now we've decreased the amount of reuptake by GLT-1. Maybe it's the GLT-1 is just being decreased only at those activated synapses. So if you could figure out a way to not only just look at the entire nucleus accumbens, just try to pinpoint which synapses were the activated ones and see if GLT-1 is decreasing those. I don't know if that's a, there's a way to do that without immuno-electron microscopy or something like that. That would probably be the only way. But also, I, as I said before, I think that because really only 4% of the synapses are implicated in this complicated behavior, but when we do a punch, we see these pronounced changes that we can't just be, um, they're, they're, the GLT-1 can't just be changing at the synapses that are important there. It must be some kind of global effect. Well, a, a drug, a pharmacological or learning effect of self-administration on these proteins. To play devil's advocate on that, so I mean the the Bruce Hope stuff is you know four percent of CFOS activated neurons. So I mean plenty more neurons might be activated. They're just not expressing the marker of which um, to pull that out. Has anybody looked at sort of preventing an individual who might be more likely to you know become addicted? And so could you sort of preventatively upregulate? So using viral approaches, so you know self-traxin won't work, but you know upregulate you know that either the cystine glutamine exchanger or the uh, um, GLT-1 and overexpress. And do those, can you reduce sort of drug intake in sort of those individuals in like a rodent model? Has anybody sort of looked at sort of that preventative? Well, we, we did try to use it in, to look at cocaine intake and we saw no effects on acquisition of cocaine self-administration um, or in the number of infusions that animals took. Again, we used a, a fairly high dose um, that I could see it would be hard to see an effect with if you used, if we would have done a dose response curve, maybe we would have seen something. I'm thinking virally, so virally sort of upregulate ahead of time and could you then prevent animals from learning to self-administer cocaine or you, 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 mm -hmm. you diminish their intake? Oh, that would be, yeah, that would be something good to look at. So your idea is that subtraxone can't fix what's broken yet, but maybe just artificially upregulating GLT-1. Yeah. Maybe in other areas, yeah, not just dependent. You're, you're interested in relapse, right? Yes. So the, the way I understand it, there's sort of two categories of relapse models in the lab, um, some that are extinction-based and some that are abstinence-based. Can you, I know there are tons of different behaviors sort of within each category and they get at some finer points of things that we could spend hours talking about. But could you kind of talk about the, the fundamental difference between those two approaches and, and, and maybe how they align with more clinical stuff and why you would use one versus the other and what you see maybe at the synaptic level? Sure. So the, the reinstatement model of um, drug relapse is based on extinguishing an association between a response and a reinforcer. Um, and so animals learn that under these conditions that making that previously reinforced response no longer delivers, in this case, cocaine or the cues associated with it. And so the idea is, is that you need to teach the animal that this, under these conditions, that pushing the lever does not yield anything, and then reinstate that response or bring it back um, with a stimuli such as cues or the drug itself or stress. Um, and so that model has been really widely used to understand the neurobiology underlying reinstatement. However, humans do not undergo explicit extinction learning. Um, that would involve something like um, <coughs> a cocaine addict um, 
you know, filling a crack pipe with a placebo and smoking it in the same context where they used to smoke crack. Um, so uh, studying extinction has been attempted in humans and um, getting humans to go through what rats go through is virtually impossible because it, everything, extinction learning is very context dependent. It really would have to happen in the same place where the addict took the drug. So um, we and other people also use a model of relapse where the animal does not go through extinction training and instead just goes through abstinence. Um, that might more accurately model what a human addict is, goes through. And the reason that I think it's important to study both is that um, we have some publications that show that just looking at the nucleus accumbens or the dorsal striatum following extinction versus abstinence and looking at just um, expression of different glutamate proteins, receptors, transporters, um, extinction alters those expressions, the expression of those proteins. And that makes a lot of sense because extinction is a really active learning process um, where the animal is um, no longer being reinforced. And so we extinction is remodeling the nucleus accumbens. So where that becomes important, I think, is when we try to translate what we find in our rodent models into the clinic possibly because um, for example in our hands ceftriaxone behaves differently in an abstinent model than it does in an extinction model meaning that ceftriaxone in an abstinent model is not as good as reducing glutamate efflux during relapse um, so there seems to be an interaction between extinction learning and ceftriaxone that um, results in a more profound restoration of glutamate homeostasis so could you unpack that a little bit in terms of um, what are the kind of functional differences in glutamate levels that you see at the synapse between abstinence versus, I mean you've done a lot of that. So in the past we found that extinction training would reduce surface expression of the postsynaptic MGLUR5 receptor. And so that seems to be helpful because what drives relapse is glutamate binding to these these postsynaptic receptors. So that, that's one example of something that we found. Um, work by um, my collaborator, Mark Schwent, has shown that um, extinction upregulates MGLUR2-3 receptors. And so if those receptors are, as we think, regulating synaptic glutamate release during relapse, um, then it would make sense that um, we would need to do extinction learning in order to fully reduce glutamate release during relapse. So do you think there's any possibility of doing uh, human extinction learning like pharmacologically or something? So that is actually what I would like to do. I, I think that there are barriers to, to incorporating it as a treatment in human addicts. So what we could do is try and understand how extinction is remodeling the brain and try and mimic that with a, with a medication. So for example, if extinction is decreasing the amount of MGLUR5 receptors that are on the surface, if we um, provide ceftriaxone in combination with an MGLU5 negative allosteric modulator, then perhaps that would be the so, so what's the thinking with extinction training? So you say it remodels the accumbens. Is that because the mice or rats or whatever are thought to forget the association between I think them? it's pretty clearly been established that extinction is not forgetting. Right. It's new learning saying under these conditions by previously reinforced response is no longer being reinforced. So they just realize that it's no longer being reinforced. So my understanding is that during extinction the animals still press the lever but they don't 
I mean, not as much as they used to, right? So is that is that because they so that that's what I don't understand, right? So if they, if if they learn that this is no longer going to work, then why do they keep trying? That's great. So I have only I only have experience with extinction from cocaine seeking. And so I can only say in that situation, they never fully stop pressing the lever. So whether that's because they would like to make sure that the conditions haven't changed every day, make sure that they still can't get cocaine from that lever, or whether it's a compulsive behavior that they can't fully control. Or you're bored and you're in a box for two hours. If you take it completely literally, the idea is that there's just new learning. And in addition to the old learning, then the animals now learn two things. One is sometimes I do get cocaine, sometimes I don't. And, and, the, and the probability of it is shifting over time. And they're just learning all that stuff. I mean, their notion that the, that the animal couldn't remember that much, that they're like so dumb they don't even remember that once, it, once I was rewarded for this and now I'm not. And they remember all that stuff. Yeah, I'm sure they can remember a lot of things. I just didn't know what the thinking is behind. Um, I think the original, the original idea about extinction was that basically you could just erase the animal's memory, that it wasn't that strong. But That's it wouldn't work with you, right? If, if you're getting rewarded for... <laughs> you might be an exceptional case. <laughs> 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 I'm, really, I'm really smart mouse. <laughs> there was a paper, so there was a paper a few years ago, Yavim Shaham was on it, it was in science, and I'm having trouble remembering uh, the bits about it, but it was using sort of a modified condition place preference paradigm to sort of create sort of a, a lay, I mean it was, it was going into sort of the idea of sort of creating a labile memory to sort of weaken it, and there was some translational human data on that. And I'm just wondering if that could, I mean obviously a condition place preference, Preference assay is just a contextual environment where, you know, obviously self-administration assay is, you know, far more, you know, operant on top of the contextual. And I was just wondering if that could speak in some way to sort of, I don't know, to, to sort of tap into what, what information could we garner from that sort of paradigm that might actually sort of influence sort of the thinking of what's happening during extinction during self-administration? Like, is it, you know, are we creating sort of a labile, you know, state? And then by then removing away from that labile state, you sort of weakened it more so. I, I, again, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling over the details of that paper, but. So are you talking, you think you talked about reconsolidation? Yes. Yeah. So I, def, you know, Rita Fuchs's group studies reconsolidation um, using a modified extinction versus abstinence paradigm where animals um, are extinguished in a context outside of their self-administration context, and then she brings them back to make that memory labile with the idea that we could do this in addicts, and if we interfere with the reconsolidation of that memory, we could interfere with memories that drive drug seeking. In terms of trying to mimic that extinction profile in humans, there's a whole other layer of to be able to treat it then with something that has a mechanism like, like ceftriaxone, there's this whole other level of complexity that you've been looking at, right, in terms of sex differences with ceftriaxone and extinction. Are, do, first of all, so do females and males extinguish the same way? Is it extinguish is the right word? Yeah. Rodents, Rodents? yes. I mean, so, yes. yes, so in our hands, um, female and male rats, um, the female rats, self-administered more of the drug. 
So they took a, they had a greater intake, which has been replicated in some studies, but not others. Um, so we found an increase in intake in our females. Um, their extinction data looked uh, identical to, to each other. So they extinguished the same as um, male rats. Um, just looking at reinstatement, their reinstatement was no different than male rats. Um, so where we saw the differences was the ability of ceftriaxone to reduce um, reinstatement in female rats. That if we looked overall at a cohort of females, yes, we saw in a statistical, um, statistically significant attenuation. But when we started to look at different phases of the estrus cycle, we saw that during estrus, ceftriaxone was not effective. So what that means for humans, um, and there has been a lot of work in, in um, female humans or women, uh, cocaine addicts, and they may be more vulnerable to cocaine-associated cocaine cues during certain parts of the menstrual cycle. They more, might be more sensitive and have um, greater responses to those cues. So it's what we found has been demonstrated in, in humans as well. So it raises the possibility that in females, that ceftriaxone might need, again, another medication along with it in order to help um, female addicts. Has anybody looked at hormonal therapy as a way yes. to... Progesterone has been shown to reduce reinstatement of cocaine-seeking. In both females and males? I don't know if it has in males, but definitely in females. But as I mentioned, you know, we just don't know enough about the female rat right now to really understand this. And so hopefully in the next few years, there will kind of be an explosion of studies um, doing what NIH intends. And, you it's know, been to, an explosion yeah. of RFAs. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. Every week. Um, anything else, guys? Good. We started a little earlier than usual today. I'll cut this part out. Um, did you want to take it anywhere? And as just we have ten minutes, but we can close it down. It's been it's actually been long. It's been like almost forty minutes already. Okay. Close it down. Okay. All right, guys. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, Maureen Axted. Um, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm -hmm.